Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 137, Messiah or Man? Now that the young Hitler was Dietrich Eckhart's newest protege, the older man took the Charlie Chaplin-looking revolutionary to meet his moneyed, intellectual, and cultured friends. Of course, none or few of this crowd took young Hitler seriously. Still, he pulled out the old trick, probably taught to him by Eckhart, of telling those in front of him at any given moment what they wanted to hear. To the business-minded, he would lower interest rates. To factory owners, he said, the unions had to go. To the politically-minded conservatives, he could get away with something as insubstantial as it was past time to bring back traditional family values. But at the end of the day, each group, little by little, fell into line, ultimately taken in by the universal idea of Hitler's anti-Jewish stance. Yet in truth, this is nothing more than demagoguery which has nothing to do with dark forces or mysticism. So let's keep digging. It's fortunate for the future Nazi party that Hitler was either a quick learner or had begun to show some of that magnetic personality he was known for in his latter days. Because just three and a half years later, Eckhart lay dying, having succumbed to years of alcohol and morphine addiction. As the end neared, he brought out his Mecca Stone, a black meteorite which he believed worked as a portal between the worlds of spirit and matter, and said, Follow Hitler, he will dance, but it is I who have called the tune. I have initiated him into the secret doctrine, opened his centers of vision, and given him the means to communicate with the powers. Do not mourn me, for I shall have influenced history more than any other German. And in this, he would be correct. Not that Hitler had been won over by all the things Eckhart believed in, but he had learned the art of manipulation. But no individual can move mountains alone. If the Nazi party, officially the NSDAP, was going to rival the other numerous fledgling political parties, then organization was needed, administrators were needed, soldiers were needed. But first things first. Joseph Goebbels, who obtained a Doctor of Philosophy degree from the University of Heidelberg in 1921, first heard of Hitler after his trial for the fail Beardhall putched, and it was Hitler's charisma and convictions during a speech in Hamburg that tied the young man to the future leader. In fact, Goebbels administered an oath to himself, to Hitler, while the latter was still on stage, straining his voice and his body in his attack upon the Jews. The realization that such men still existed forced Goebbels, by his own account, to dedicate his life and soul to the Austrian. Goebbels became member number 8762 of the NSDAP. But Goebbels' joining of Team Hitler wasn't a political event but more of a lost young man finding a mentor. And even here, it seemed to be a mystical finding for the former student. This young doctor of philosophy believed he had found his and Germany's Messiah. He would write of the future Fuhrer 
I recognize him as my leader quite unconditionally. He is so deep and mystical. He knows how to express infinite truth. He seems like a prophet of old. How much elementary strength is there in this man compared to the intellectuals? His overwhelming personality. With such a man, one can conquer the world. However, it is easy, with a healthy dollop of skepticism, to replace Goebbels' admiration for Hitler's strong ideas with the conviction of a lunatic. Goebbels, like so many, wasn't looking for the smartest man in the room to solve the nation's problems, but rather a man strong enough to smash to pieces what like-minded people had already decided what the problems were. The Jews, the Weimar Republic, and the democratic neighbors. Thus, Hitler's circle was forming. But Hitler's greatest gain came in the form of Hermann Goering. On the opposite end of Goebbels, on the occult scale, Goering was all about power and domination, that simply the aristocracy should rule as God intended, and for that, power was needed, and for power, lying and manipulation were needed. Any means justified the end, as if God or whatever supernatural force had set the goals, and it was up to the Nazis, by any means, to achieve them. In fact, it's even doubtful that Gehring can be believed when he uttered such things as, I have no conscience, my conscience is Adolf Hitler, and I joined the party because I was a revolutionary, not because of any ideological nonsense. For this man's currency was power and influence. Any talk of mysticism would have him reaching for his sidearm. That is, except when he was talking about Hitler. To be sure, Goering's presence is one of the biggest holes in the theory that Hitler and the Nazis were helped by dark forces. Still, every organization, even those supported by entities that honestly believe in other realms of being, could benefit from practical advantages. And that's where Goering came in. For it would be Goering that would take Hitler to make the rounds to the powerful German industrialists like Krupp and Thyssen, another steel and arms magnate. Because of Goering, Hitler and the NSDAP were now socially acceptable. Goering had flown with the famous Richtofen squadron during the Great War. But before we move on from supposedly tearing another hole in the theory of the occult and the Nazis, it must be remembered that Goering was physically afraid of Hitler, that Goering, who thought the world of himself, would only bow to one man, Adolf Hitler, not his father or his superiors in the armed flying forces, but again, a corporal who was an Austrian at that. For someone like Goering, who grew up rich, lived well, and never heard the word no, even his own mother said her son would grow up either to be a great man or a great criminal, his willpower and identity of self were almost unassailable. That is, except for in the presence of Adolf Hitler. So what was it about this man that could break Goering's will and convince Goebbels who was an accomplished BS artist of the First Order, that they had met their spiritual superior. 
For now, the last of Hitler's entourage to be mentioned is Rudolf Hess, who was Hitler's secretary during the failed Beer Hall Putsch. Hess, like Hitler, was also the victim of an overbearing father and an over-excusing mother. And perhaps that was the emotional element at the beginning of their relationship. But more than that, Hess saw in Hitler the bombastic man he knew he could never be. Which has nothing to do with dark forces, but rather one man with shortcomings in his psychological makeup, and the other who seems to have overcome the same deficiencies. But would that not seem mystical to a dysfunctional person like Hess? But more than that, Hess, when he was a student of Professor Karl Haushofer at the University of Munich, who stressed the concept of Lebensraum, or living space, that Germany needed in the East, would share this idea with Hitler, who incorporated it into Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. Also, on a more earthly plane, Hess first heard Hitler speak in 1920 at a Munich rally, and like so many others, fell under the speaker's spell. But to negate any mysticism from that encounter, Hitler had simply said many things, and said them passionately, things that Hess already agreed with. It was the equivalent of preaching to the choir. That Germany had been stabbed in the back by the German politicians. That Jews had brought on the military defeat. That Germany had to rid itself of the Jews and democracy, if Germany was going to be once again great. But what was there about the man doing the speaking, certainly saying nothing different than many others, that fastened people to him? And having found his mentor, his role model, Hess began to come out from under his shell, perhaps constructed by his father's domineering personality. In 1935, this reinvigorated Hess, signed into law for Hitler, the Nuremberg Laws, that stripped Jews of their rights. Further, he was made the number three man of the Nazi party, just behind Goering in 1939. In other words, having found Hitler, Hess became the man he really was, a product of nationalist Germany, who blamed Jews for their problems and further wanted to use force to solve their problems, including Germany's perceived inferior status to other European countries. For Hess and many others, Hitler was their messiah, the entity that would not only raise up Germany, but allow each person to become what they had only dreamed of. Problem was, as Hitler surrounded himself with demented psychopaths, what they wanted to do was dominate. But it would be Hess's willingness to stay in jail with Hitler after his arrest and to take the latter's ramblings to form them into some sort of coherency, which would later become Mein Kampf, that would give the young Hess the ability to stay inside Hitler's inner circle. Of course, such statements that stroked Hitler's ego from Hess, like, One man remains beyond all criticism. That is the Fuhrer. This is because everyone feels and knows he is always right, and he will always be right. Didn't hurt either. And for this podcaster, that 
tone, that note of sycophancy, which is replete from so many Nazi officials, even early on, is as far as I can go in thinking some other worldly force assisted Hitler in his rise to power. For how many of you can remember anyone ever being described as such, leaving aside religious leaders or other representatives of a god? Is this lip service, or did these men and women really believe that Hitler was more than just a passionate, silver-tongued politician? However, Germany's wounded pride and economic conditions has to be a part of that equation. Whatever the answer is, it was that wholehearted belief that allowed most of them to follow this man, even when his orders met the death or vile mistreatment of hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions, of their fellow human beings. And yet, even though Professor Haushofer has been called a Satanist or a believer in the occult, it's equally likely, if not more so, that his disillusionment after the Great War stirred something in him, something that made him seek power, any power, stronger than the Allies that could assist Germany in its lowly state. But wishing doesn't make it so. Strangely, Haushofer is remembered as someone who visited Hitler often in jail and taught him, or passed on to him, the ability to access dark power, though it seems that for the inmate, it didn't take. To paraphrase a part of Mein Kampf on the subject, he writes, I warn again and again against those wandering Volkish scholars whose positive achievement is always nothing. They abound in old German heroism, that they revel in the dim past, stone axes, spears, and shields, but that in their own essence they are the greatest imaginable cowards. For the same persons who wave about toy swords carefully manufactured in imitation of old Germanic style, and wear a prepared bearskin to cover their bearded heads, always preach for the present time only in a spiritual battle, and then run away from the sight of a communist blackjack. I have the feeling that they are sent by dark forces who do not desire the rebirth of our people, for their entire activity leads the Volk away from its fight against the common enemy, the Jew. And to that could be added the communists, who were a growing force in 1920s Germany. However, the professor's influence should not be dismissed completely. While visiting Hitler in jail, who was allowed to leave in 1924, the older, more polished man convinced the inmate to trot a different path when he was once again free. Forget violent demonstrations. Forget trying to tear down the state. Instead, the Nazis needed to appeal to the people in need while undermining the institutions of the Weimar Republic. And that weakening of the bonds that held German society together needed to be parted with words. Hitler's words, not by the fists of the brown shirts. The Nazi hierarchy needed to become a rapier, not a broadsword. Leave that for the masses. And Hitler would pay heed to these words, mostly as he took himself, his party, and his chances 
more seriously, one result being his abstinence from alcohol and meat, which one could claim was his sacrifices for his belief that it was his duty to save Germany. But at the very least, in a larger sense, Professor Haushofer readied Hitler for bigger things and for national office. And it was the office of Chancellor that came to Hitler and the Nazis after the Great Depression that drove millions of Germans into the Nazi camp. This was followed hard upon by the Reichstag fire set by the Nazis themselves to give them the excuse to push through the Enabling Act, which gave Germany's new, untested leader emergency powers. But how to explain what Hitler did in early 1938, when upon entering Austria as it was annexed, one of the first things Hitler did was to take possession of the Holy Lance in the Hofburg Museum. His coming to power was in 1933, and his first few years were needed to consolidate his power and bewilder foreign leaders. And this he did. Afterwards, he began casting a wider net, and the German-speaking neighbor that was his homeland seemed a logical choice. But Hitler had read enough history to know that ownership of the spear was a tricky thing, if one believed in the stories. Which, of course, is our question, one that will sadly never be answered. To possess the Holy Lance is to wield power. To wield power is to invite the jealousy of others, equally ruthless. To be sure, the SA, or Sturmabteilung, the Nazis' paramilitary unit, seemed a threat to Hitler back in 1934, as a showdown seemed imminent between the German army and the SA. Hitler wisely chose to back the army and dealt with the SA and its leader, Ernst Rahm, during the Night of the Long Knives, from June 30, 1934, to July 2nd. At least 85 people were killed without trial, but that number is more likely 150. And there were some victims who just happened to have the same name as some people that were on the executioner's lists but such things result from mindless barbarity. Hence, it will make sense that Hitler had Heinrich Himmler's SS scour the Austrian capital first before Hitler entered the city to seek out his enemies. Only then did Hitler travel straight to the Imperial Palace and from its balcony told his fellow Austrians of their incorporation into his greater Germany, the Third Reich. What would have normally happened next, not that mostly nonviolent takeovers were normal, was that Hitler would have taken a tour of the city or dined with the civic dignitaries so that each side could come to understand the needs of the other. No, instead, Hitler made for the museum. There waiting for him was Himmler, his SS, and the Spear of Destiny. Also waiting was Wolfram von Sievers, head of the Nazi Occult Bureau. Himmler and von Sievers would go on working together, from tearing Jewish bodies apart in order to prove their inferiority, to establishing the Anen Eaba, a think tank branch of the SS that had the task of promoting 
and proving the racial doctrines espoused by Hitler, specifically by supporting the idea that the modern Germans descended from the ancient Aryan race, which were biologically superior to all other groups. Some of their expeditions will be covered. Back to the Spear of Destiny. With the museum surrounded by SS guards, only Hitler and Himmler were allowed to mount the stairs to the main door. From there, Hitler went in alone. This was a moment, supposedly, that he had been waiting for since 1913, after the Academy of Art had turned him down, after Vienna ignored him and his sad little works of art during his vagabond days. Now was his moment of revenge. Before the Holy Lance was placed aboard an armored train bound for Nuremberg, specifically St. Catherine's Church, as were the imperial crown jewels, the Nazis weren't stupid, Hitler held in his hands one of the greatest relics in Christendom. The question was, who and when, if ever, would take the spear from his hands? 